All right, here we go. You got a pastor on fire today? I guarantee you in 99% of the churches in this community today, you wouldn't have seen the pastor make a fool of himself. But I'm all right with that. (laughs) All right, that first song today had a line in it, about 10,000 reasons for my heart to find. Name one. Y'all got a reason to do something today? Kind of, you, you're alive. That's a good reason. Yes. I even did the backstroke. Did you guys notice that? (laughs) Freedom. Freedom to be ourselves. Not critical of ourselves. Not judgmental. Freedom to love ourselves. Freedom to forgive ourselves. To be childlike. Name another, because I'm not going on until I get a few more. What are the 10,000 reasons that we're going to be just singing and praising and all of that stuff? Because Jesus is my everything and Jesus is enough. Jesus is our everything and he is enough. I'll drink to that. Yes. Yes. Did you see at the end of that one song where it had Psalm 103.1 in there? Bless the Lord, all my soul. You know what the word bless means? Well, sometimes. But it actually means salute. One of, the, one of the interpretations is salute. I salute you, Lord. Isn't that interesting? It's one of the translations from the, from the Hebrew. It translates out four different things. One of which is salute. One of which is to praise. And then we sang about, Holy Spirit, you are welcome here. Now let me let me take you back to this chart. Did he ever leave? No. So when we say you are welcome here, what are we doing? We are turning consciously our attention and focus. We're being we're being in the now consciously, recognizing where we are. We're not trying to pull him down to some place down here where we might be, but when we say, Holy Spirit, you are welcome here what we're really saying is we're recognizing our connection. This is a connection better than a 440 volt plug-in. This is like beyond comprehension at times. That's why we have to slow it down sometimes and go, Holy Spirit, you are welcome here. Is a recognition that he's in our life. But we don't beg for him to come. It's really a recognition that he's already here. Okay? And so I wanted to point that out to you. Because he is here. And then, what are you really saying when, you, when, when we sing a song that says, I want to go deeper? What, is that, what does that mean to you? I want to go deeper. Get to know him better. Get to know him better. Strong relationship. Deeper in his revelation. Deeper in his revelation. Standing in the fire. Standing in the fire. Swimming in the river. Swimming in the river. Backstroke. I have to perfect the breaststroke. 
greater intimacy without walls, without junk in the way deeper in love and all of those we have the capacity for because it's already planted deep so really what we're saying is Lord let the bucket come up and pour out on us the bucket from the well remember that teaching a few weeks back probably a couple months now and then there was a song about in dealing with our fear we have to face the God we know there's a place where your fear has to face the God you know there's a place where your fear has to face the God you know what God do you know today do you know this God that's included you in the family not because of what you did but because he chose to before the foundation of the universe picture this before the foundation of the universe God says I'm going to create Greg because I want fellowship with Greg and I'm going to create each one of you because I want fellowship with each one of you and he goes and I know because I'm big you're going to have trouble relating to me so I'm going to chunk it down and I'm going to come down and be with you And in the process of coming down to be with you, I'm going to reveal your capacity to live out what I intended in creation by drawing you into the depth of my heart. That's the God we know. That's the place where fear has to yield. And as we are conscious, in conscious awareness, focusing on God and this relationship that he's drawn us into, eventually those fears crumble. They have to. But they won't crumble if we're on autopilot. Relationship is participatory. We get to participate in this relationship. And as we participate in this relationship, by acknowledging him in the now, all this stuff opens up. So I just want to encourage you with that today because that's what he was showing me during worship. It had nothing to do with my message. Just something he wanted to share with you all. (laughs) He's all looking at me like, oh, there he is. He's off the farm again. We started talking last week about grace from God. We we talked about grace for a couple weeks ago about grace from God's perspective. And now we're working on grace from man's perspective. And when we were talking about grace, we... We just sort of recap from God's perspective that grace is goodness, God's goodness. It's His unconditional love, His unmerited kindness, where we get to change our mind about God through metanoia, repentance. It's relationship, reconciliation. It's always instigated by God. If left to myself, I can't muster up enough consistency to chase God. And so He makes it easy. He chases us. Okay? And Jesus is pure grace. Those are the, some of the recaps we talked about last week. And so I put the cross up here on this larger chart because the cross is sort of the, well, not sort of, it is the emblem in Christianity of the punctuation part where it is finished. Right? But the reality is it's the entire incarnation from the birth, the life, the death the burial, the resurrection, and the ascension, which is the entire incarnational reality that changes our perspective 
And if we change our perspective, then what? What happens when we change perspective? We change our perception. And what happens when we change our, perspe- our perception? We change our belief. And what happens when our belief changes? It changes our reality. Because it first changes our experience. Jesus changes our perspective. But what happens when we just don't have a perspective of this inclusive God who draws us into a union with himself, punctuated by the cross, what are we left with if we don't have that perspective? Well, what we have is a lot of different theories about life. And we started last week talking about atheism. What's an atheist? It's a person who doesn't believe in God. They don't believe in the existence of God. What did you say, Carol? They think they don't believe in God. But what they'll tell you is they don't believe that there is anything called a God. Well, if there is nothing out there of a God of any kind, who now sets right and wrong? The atheist does. And Greg Greg and I are both atheists, but we have a difference of perspective about right and wrong. Who's right and who's wrong? No, I'm right. You're wrong, I'm right. And you get into these arguments. And atheism is a subjective perspective where God is objectively in reality included even the atheist. There's a subjective rejection of what God has done. And most of us at one point or another have lived out of a subjective rejection of the truth. Because if grace is the truth, Most of us, most of our lives have not understood it and therefore lived outside of it in our heads. Not in God's mind or heart, though. And so God is at work right now trying to bridge subjective reality to objective reality because objective reality is always more powerful than our subjective thought process. How many of you know you can be wrong all the way to the insane asylum. You can talk yourself into craziness if you don't have an objective reality. You can talk yourself into war. Countries go to war because they've lost sight of objective reality. And so for an atheist, their influence is what's going on around them in the natural because they don't believe in a supernatural. They don't believe in God. And I told you that if you looked at Romans Chapter 1, starting at verse 18 and going through all the way through chapter 3, verse 31, you'll see what happens when you live out of a subjective reality that excludes God. I mean, there's moral chaos. There is all kinds of stuff that just goes negative because they reject God. And, And Paul tells us about that. And so then I left you with a question last week. How do you share the gospel of grace with an atheist? And how many of you pondered that question this week? I know Donna did, because we talked before church. Hmm. Still pondering? Was it Dobie Gillis? (laughs) (laughs) Managing Krebs. (laughs) You are getting up there in years, buddy. (laughs) Your infinite wisdom is becoming more obvious the older you get. (laughs) How do you share... Well, let me put it this way. 
If you walk up to an atheist who just does not believe in God and you say, buddy, if you don't turn or go into hell, what are they going to say? Don't believe in hell. So sharing the four spiritual laws is not going to get you there because they're not open to the four spiritual laws. But, but it makes you feel better about yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. Okay. Yep, I got it. I, I, I chalked up another witness on my calendar. Got no conversion, but I got 100 witnesses. Think about that. And let's talk about the next one over, which is spiritism. Spiritism. It's a science dedicated to the relationship between incorporeal beings or spirits and human beings. But they don't believe in God. Believe in spirit beings, but they don't believe in God. And the focus is on a human's essential immortality. So these spirits they believe in are humans who've died and their spirits are still floating around. And they keep coming back. They come back in different uh, physical bodies over time. And they're seeking moral and intellectual improvement every time they come back. How do you know when you're going to arrive? How many times do I have to come back to get it? How many times do I have to come back if I'll ever get it? See, there's no, in the, in the sense of a spiritist, there's no absolute. There's no absolute right or wrong. There's no absolute goodness or evil. And so in the lack of a, of a mental or a paradigm of absolute truth, then how do I know if I ever arrive? My spirit guide tells me, yeah, they usually tell me, because they want to be better than me, they'll usually tell me something. But this is where you find mediums, automatic writing, Ouija boards, mesmerism, channeling. And you find famous people, even in, in atheists. Stephen Hawking was an atheist. He just died recently. Woody Allen is an atheist. You watch some of Woody's shows and you kind of you kind of know what he doesn't have a perspective perspective of god spiritists include arthur conan doyle who wrote sherlock holmes and if you think about some of sherlock holmes books they're always on the borderline of supernatural natural they're just sort of there's this hint of a supernatural realm that and he's playing around with spiritism at that point and that's a philosophy it's not a religion how do you witness to a spiritist then? Again, they don't believe in God, but they believe in a supernatural realm. So how are you going to witness to them? You're going to witness differently than you would to an atheist? You're going to, I mean, are we going to have a pattern for each one, each category of people? And I can put a lot more categories than what I have up here, but the question is, how do you talk about a supreme being with someone who doesn't believe in a supreme being? Because they're looking, spiritists are looking to the outside realm to perfect the spiritual side of, of life. Do you think they're going to find much perspective in, or, or um, pers- they're going to perfection in the world today? I don't know. I'm not a spiritist. And then there's these spiritually ignorant paganism. I call them the spiritually ignorant, ignorant because they believe they believe in a higher power. But they're just ignorant about what that looks like. And you'll find these are 
that's often called in the writings the, the religion of the peasants. And it's like Wicca, witches, druids, the goddess, goddess worship of the old, olden times. And it's a, it's a religion that seeks to perfect self, usually in sensual pleasure and materialistic goods. So it's a, a philosophy, a, a spiritual philosophy of nature. nature. Thank you. Thank you. And how do you, how do you share the gospel with a, with a pagan then? Because if they're tied into nature, well, you know, if there's a drought and the crops fail, then what? Do we have to sacrifice something? Why are the gods mad? Right? Again, there's not one god, there's many gods. Remember Paul's discussion with in Greece at Mars Hill? What did he do to try to reach them? Did he get in their face and go, You idiots! There's only one god! He knew who the unknown god was. He entered into their thoughts. He entered into their paradigm and said, let me share another aspect of that paradigm. Did he not? He did. And then there's these agnostics. What's an agnostic? They believe but not for them. They believe but not for them. An agnostic is a person who holds that the existence of the ultimate cause, the ultimate reality such as God, and the nature of things are unknown and unknowable. So they acknowledge there, there is the potential for a God, but he's not knowable. A lot of scientists in that category. How, do you, how does an objective reality get extended to someone who goes, well, I think there's a God. I'll concede the possibility there's a God, but nobody can know him. He's totally unknowable. What kind of life is that? For them, it's okay. For me, it's like, wow, I think I'd be bored to some degree. So they believe it's impossible to know anything about God or about the creation of the universe, and therefore they refrain from commitment to any religious perspective. Yeah, there's a God, maybe. But he's unknowable. So I'm just going to live my life the way I see fit. Is that any, really any different than the atheist? Not really. Because where does absolute truth come from then? Where does moral authority come from? Themselves. And you get ten agnostics in the room and you're going to get ten different absolute truths in their mind. Because they're going to set the standard. And, and here's where it's interesting. Warren Buffett is an agnostic. Mr. Billionaire himself. He wants to get rich. And if there's no moral absolute people can do things like manipulate the market and get rich and not even feel guilty about it clarence darrow the the supreme court justice from the 19 mid 19th cent or 20th century the mid 1900s he was an agnostic the movie actor actress carrie fisher was agnostic and believe it or not, Carl Sagan, who most people think was an atheist, was actually an agnostic. They just can't get themselves to concede there is one God.
or let alone many gods. I mean, they won't go there either. And so they, they have this, pers this perspective that and they, it makes them resistant then to try to convince them to change their mind. Greg, I know you're sincere when you're trying to share the gospel with me, but that works for you, but I don't, I don't believe that. So stop trying. I don't want to hear it anymore. I've got my, I've got my compass, and I'm okay with that. So they're very resistant to anybody sharing the gospel with them because they've settled that you can never know God. And so if you can never know God, don't talk to me about God because you've got to be nuts if you think you can know God because he's unknowable. Well, I know. That's why you're going to get committed tomorrow because you talk to God. <laughs> and I'm going to do one more and then we're going to do and then I'm going to save the rest for next week deism what's a deist in simple terms a deist is someone who believes that God created the universe wound it up and then stepped back and separated from its, the, its outcome a deist believes in God and some deists actually believe in many gods so they're, they're open to the concept of a supreme being it's just, who's that being? And there are people all around the world like that. One who believes in the existence of God is the cause of all things and admits its perfection, but rejects divine revelation or direct intervention of God in the universe by miracles. A deist will have a problem in a charismatic church because they don't believe in revelation. A deist will have a problem basically in any aspect of Christianity, because what's Christianity? It's based upon inspired revelation, right? So the deist will tell you, yep, there's a God, but he's not active in my world. So if he's not active in my world, he can't be active in your world. So don't talk to me about miracles. They have a hard time rationalizing miracles, though. And they really have a hard time with a prophet, especially one who reads their mail. You got mail. So, deists include, let's see, Thomas Edison was a deist. Napoleon was a deist. They say George Washington was a deist. Andrew Carnegie was a, was a deist. And today, like Jennifer Aniston, the actress is a deist. Interesting, huh? I mean, they come in every shape and size, just like the rest of us. Some dance more than others. Gosh, that one went over. That was a flat joke, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> so my point is, how do we share grace? How do we share the gospel message of pure grace with all of these different mindsets? I'll say this, and then we're going to watch a movie. It's not put your finger in their face. We're going to watch a 30-minute teaching discussion, panel discussion, about how to evangelize under grace. And I'm going to challenge you to throw away everything you know about evangelism. And then we'll talk some more after that. So let me move my props out of the way. tough part about props is you got to move them. good side about props is I get more exercise. On this episode of You're Included, 
C. Baxter Kruger and Paul Young return to discuss the impact of the Trinity on evangelism and our participation in the message of Jesus. Our host is Dr. J. Michael Fazell. Thanks for being with us on Year Included. Thank you. It's always fun to be here. Well, we enjoy Good it. Good to see you again, Mike. And uh, this time we want to talk about something a little bit different. Uh, we, we uh, Evangelism, of course, is the big word in uh, Western Christianity. Everything revolves around evangelism and what are you doing to share the gospel. And it's like the uh, 11th commandment uh, in the Old Testament and it's the... It's the fundraising arm of yes. religious Christianity. But uh, I grew up in but, Presbyterian Church. I didn't know what that word was until I went to seminary. So, but we need we do want to share the gospel, and uh, but how's that done? And how does Trinitarian theology affect evangelism? What what are the implications? What uh, what is the impact? How are we to see evangelism and think of it? And uh, let's talk about that. It's a great question. Go ahead, Baxter. <laughs> well, the first thing that comes to my mind is that when you start off with the Father, Son, and Spirit, you have a relationship, and they they love one another in complete and utter oneness. Their dream for us is to draw us into their relationship so that it can become as much ours as it is theirs. So the message of the gospel, the good news, is that you're included. And that's what we're supposed to share with people. And I think the best way to share it with them is the way the Father, Son, and Spirit share it with us, which is as persons in relationship. So in terms of having a program where we're trying to knock on doors or we're doing different things, to me it's about um, this city here is, what, 20 million people around here who are included in the life of Jesus that probably have not much of a clue about that. The way we do that is, is by uh, one person at a time in relationship, getting to know people, inviting them over, talking with them. And I think underneath that, um, as a freeing aspect for a normal Christian person, is the more we grow in the knowledge and understanding and intimacy that, we, that we're loved and that we're cared for, the more free and natural it is to share. And you got more confidence because this is good. This has really helped my life. I want you to see this. How can I come alongside and share this with you? Sometimes informationally, sometimes it may just be befriending them. Um, Don't you think that a lot of times evangelism is a is a segment of spirituality in terms of how it's presented, and the idea of evangelism is to get somebody from point A to point somewhere else, from outside to inside, outside to inside, across the line, across the bridge, mm-hmm. whatever, and uh, and that's not what you're talking about at all. But Jesus has crossed the line and crossed the bridge and found the human race, and that's what's true. And, and he's called us as Christians to go and share that with the world so that they can know they're included too. And then we can walk together and begin to figure out what this life means. How do we live this way? How do we participate in that Trinitarian life? But for me right now at this point in history, I think the most important part of the discussion of evangelism is not the method, but the message. Mm. I mean, the message that I'm hearing is that there's a huge chasm between God and us, and that there's all these different ways that we can get across over to God. And once we get across that big chasm in Jesus, by faith, repentance, maybe by um, uh, baptism or by sacraments or all these different things that we got to do. But once we cross that, then we're loved, then we're accepted, then we're reconciled, then we're saved, then we're sanctified, then all the adopted. And I'm saying the message to be proclaimed is that 
that yes, there was a huge chasm that Adam and Eve in their disobedience plunged the human race into darkness. There was a huge chasm, but then there's this thing called the incarnation where the Father's Son came across the chasm to find us in the far country, put us on his shoulders, and bring us back to his Father. Now, that's when we were loved and saved and reconciled, but we're still in the dark and have no clue as to who we are and living out of our darkness, and it's fear, and it's insecurity, and it's pain, and it's meaninglessness. I mean, this is, we belong to the Father, Son, and Spirit. I, I package it this way sometimes just to make, to make the point very stark in contrast to what I have heard all my life on radio and television. All the, the gospel is not the news that we can receive Jesus into our lives. The gospel is the news that Jesus has received us into his life. He has made us part of his world part of his relationship with the Father, the Holy Spirit, and his relationship with all creation. That's the good news. And so we're, we're, we've got to get the message worked out, and I think the Holy Spirit's doing that right now. The last 30 years, it's, been, it's like turning up the heat on this. It's beautiful. People are really beginning to wrestle with it. You're telling me that that guy sitting on the park bench is included? That's exactly what I'm telling you. He wouldn't have been able to come inside of God's creation apart from being included. Does he know that? Heck, no, he doesn't know it. Because he doesn't know it, he's scared to death. He doesn't know where his next meal is going to come from. He, didn't, he doesn't know what to do with life. is so precarious. He's, he's frozen in fear. Well, when we see that, we can go begin to share with him who he is because of who Jesus is. That may mean befriending him. It may mean giving him a place to live. It may mean helping him out. Or it may just mean share, you know, sharing one word with him in that particular moment. And I don't want to formulate the thing so that we've got this one package and we just so more, more or less go and puke on everybody where they're, they're ready to hear it or not. It's much more relational. And you're saying also that there's no part of life that is not evangelism in that sense. I mean, we embody the good news because we are participating in, in the, the truth and the love and the grace that we already have come to know, even though we're not fully there yet and we're in process ourselves. And... Uh, and so love becomes at the, the centerpiece of this, the way we love one another and the way that we love others, the way we love our enemies. The, the old sacred-secular dichotomy has got to be dismantled in this too because if, if you throw your lot in 100% with the Father, Son, and Spirit and you surrender wholly to them, they're going to do a whole lot more for you than make you simply an evangelist. You're going to be a good human being. You're going to be a, you're going to be a bass fisherman. Maybe you make lures. You're going to be into everything that they're into. And they're into everything in this cosmos. Yeah. That sacred-secular dichotomy goes away so that the more we throw ourselves in with the Father, Son, and Spirit, the more like them, their life begins to flow through us in an infinite variety of ways. And it may well be through, through uh, joining a, a lure-making association that you meet three or four guys and you end up having a beer with them and talking and, you meet, and they, their lives start, they start un, un sharing their lives with you right there. And you begin to to talk to them about what your experience has been and what's given you hope and why and why you enjoy things like fishing. And, and their lives may begin to be revolutionized simply by a discussion about fishing that's not rooted in the sacred-secular dichotomy and not rooted in the ogre god who's got us afraid and trying to make us religious androids. I mean, that... Yeah, and that's, well, isn't that, that that's I've, I've seen these uh, kits, you know, where they'll, you'll go through the videotape and the lessons and all about relational evangelism and it talks about how to go out and, and, and make friends with people and all. And, and from the outset, the only reason you're making friends with these people and you've targeted them is because, well, they need the gospel, so I'm going to befriend them. 
so that I can keep working with them until the right point comes where I can present the gospel. And, and it, it's just, it, it, to me, that's an artificial, at least this is how it strikes me, mm-hmm. it's, it's an artificial friendship that you're making only because you think, well, I need to get the gospel to them. Therefore, I'll make friends with them in order to get the opportunity so to give them the Let's fake the relationship gonna, so I can it, maybe get you introduced to a real exactly. one. How, how many of us have been involved with somebody inviting us over to their house and, and so that they can really exactly. you know, tell us what the agenda is? Oh, oh it's and not it's fundraising just, this time. It's evangelism this time. Yeah, <laughs> it's the so, same so you're a, you're a, Yeah, you're a project. It's like you're, it's like you're a, a used car salesman, not a used, uh, an insurance salesman. And you're always having to think, in order to, to survive and make, make enough money to get by, you've always got to think of everybody as a potential Pardon. sale. Mm-hmm. And so you're, you are always exactly have that in the back of your mind. And well, once you sell the car to them, that's the end of it. Yeah. And the goal of evangelism is discipleship and inclusion in the community. And isn't, yeah. if, if people matter, if they really are real and they matter, isn't it... And isn't, and, and and relation uh, having right relationships is the goal of life. Then, as you were saying, Paul, everything is is evangelism in that sense. Absolutely. So that our very definition of evangelism, the end is the relationship. It's okay to have friends for the sake of friendship. Of being friends it's okay for them. Because it's okay to be friendly and be friends because people matter. They're worth being friends with. Yeah, for their sake. Now, uh, I think Peter said, be ready always to give, a, give a, a, an answer for the hope that lies within you. And, and well, that's assuming somebody asks you about exactly, the hope that lies within you. Live such a life so that people might even ask or be... How often does that happen? But do we have to <laughs> make every friendship for the sake of, as though, you know, this person's going to go to hell if we don't get... So we got to find a sneaky way to... Uh, you know, to get the gospel to them. We're, we're Can we trust God to to be who He is for them, and enjoy them as a person, without having this constant thing in the back of our mind? Of when how am I? When can I work in the gospel? How am I going to work in? Aren't we being Christ to them? That's exactly the point. In the friendship itself, I, well, well, that is the point. I mean, we we're train stops in people's lives. Now, with family. To train stop more often than not, but we're free to love them and to be there for them. That Jesus is the is the evangelist, and the Holy Spirit is the is the redeeming genius. Uh, I, we're called into what they're doing. They're the ones that are burdened for the whole world to come to see the truth, not us. And they can they're using us to be part of that process in people's life. We get to be free to love a person for their sake. I don't need to have a fully worked out agenda for the man on the park bench. I'm free to care for him in this in this moment. If it goes somewhere else, then I'll follow and see where it goes. And but it's it's a good thing to care for someone. So okay, this man needs food. That's fantastic. Help him get food. And it may be that the Lord wants me to do something a little bit more with it. I don't know. But it, the gift itself is for him. It's for his blessing, his benefit. The Holy Spirit can interpret that. So as we live out of the other centeredness, that is outside of ourselves, which, what do we do that, you know, maybe two or three seconds every day, but during those two or three seconds when we're living <laughs> in a non-self-centered way and Christ is, is living in us, isn't that the way we are? In other words, we're, 
it's natural to care about somebody and to help where you can and be present for someone in their need as we're able. I think we are by nature, because of our union with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, now are by nature lovers of people. I think that's what is true about us. We just don't know it. And as a yeah. man thinks in his heart, so is he. So if you think, and I, if you think you're not, then you're going to function like you're not. Yeah. But I also think that a lot of times our struggle with the methodologies of evangelism is because they're not natural to our nature, of, of which is to love. Yeah. You know, how, how many classes did you take on on being a father and loving your child, you know, and making sure that the methodology was right. And it's not that we don't get help along the way, but there is something that that child brings to us by virtue of who we are now. I'm a father and they are my child. And yeah, I do grow in that, but let me tell you, it's, there's not a methodology about it that then makes me more valuable to that son or daughter. And, um, and, and, and I love the idea that there is a, a, a God who has climbed into our inabilities and joined us in that with all of their ability to be present, to be kind. You know, you look at the fruit of the Spirit, it's a description of God. It's not commodities that God has that he dispenses when you ask for them or need them. This is God. You know, this is the fruit of the Spirit, and the Spirit is of the same nature and character as the Father and the Son. Kindness, gentleness. You know, when have those things been part of a methodology of evangelism? Right. And everybody wants to be known, and everybody, and everybody wants to be cared for. And when you know and care for someone, you're going to have conversations with them. It's, I, when, when Contrita hit Mississippi Gulf, Gulf Coast and just ripped our coast completely apart, we were all watching on TV in Jackson until our electricity went off. And I remember driving to the Coliseum. I don't know what I was doing, but I was driving by the Coliseum the the day, but it was the day before Katrina hit. This is this is a hundred and something mile, hundred and eighty miles from our coast. There were two hundred cherry pickers lined up in the parking lot uh, from all over the country. People had taken their vacation time. The companies donated the truck. They were lined up the day before, two days before Katrina hit, actually. And the minute the storm was over, those guys were making us going straight down 49 to our coast. And I was having a conversation during that same period about someone who was asking me what I thought about the emerging church. And it's the same thing to me when you say, what about evangelism? I want to know where does the origin for that kind of concern and that kind of camaraderie and brotherhood come from? That's not evil. That's not coming from the devil. There were some people that drove as far as Oregon Ooh. and some probably from Canada. Now, our guys have done the same thing for them. It's part of a tradition to help each other in that particular, this one little world. Ooh. So you want to talk about evangelism, you want to talk about, about the emerging church. The first thing we need to do is we need to begin to identify the Jesus that's already everywhere anyway and already at work. Because I want to talk to those men, and I want to say thank you as a, as a son of Mississippi. Thank you for taking your vacation. Thank your families for helping us out. And then I want to say to them, that's beautiful. That's sacrificial. That's other-centered. And I want to say that sounds just like the Father, Son, and Spirit. And, and begin to have a approach those guys in that honor and dignity, that opens up an entirely new world as opposed to, okay, 
Paul, we got 200 guys. Yeah. They're not going to be in Mississippi again. Let's go blitzkrieg them. Let's leave well, Baptists. Let's make sure that they pray a prayer so they can get out of Jesus. I mean, get out of where they are into Jesus. And so we'll at least know they're saved when they go home. I mean, who's the joke on there? Yeah. I mean, who's blind there? What is really happening? You know, to be able to. So we got all these discussions about the emerging church. But if that's not the emerging church, I don't want to be a part of one. And, and, and you end up treating people like targets. Yeah, you, you lose the value of their humanity. Exactly. How many yeah. how many funeral services have you been to? And I've been to, uh, unfortunately, one really recently for a young man who is um, my youngest son's best friend, who was killed in a dirt bike accident just a couple weeks ago, and uh, who is a member of our family, and we we grieve him deeply. But well-meaning brothers and sisters in our in our family conversation. They want to use that time to evangelize people because they know that people's hearts are sensitive. And I'm thinking, I want because their hearts are sensitive, I want to treat them with a greater degree of respect and kindness than they've ever known. And to, to turn this event into um, a marketing opportunity, into a commercial, I think is just so devastating and, and so short-sighted. You know, let's let's enter into each other's pain and sorrow. And let me tell you, the young people, the generation that's coming up, that was in the middle of this loss, they showed up in a way that a lot of the adults didn't know how to because they knew about the value of being in the middle of it with each other. And that became the why people would ask the question, how come this is different? What is this about the celebration of someone's life? What is this hope that is not just so bent by grief, right? And, and, and then it becomes a part of the expression of our lives together because we actually value those people because we know Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is all over them to begin with and values them. And evangelism is no longer a methodology or a part of our spirituality or anything like that. It becomes an expression. And, and we get to treat people like we know they matter because of the way we've been treated because we found out we mattered. You know, tell, tell the story of, um, of the seminary student and the farmer. I think it has total application to the conversation at this point. The, this, is a, uh, this happened to me years ago. I was, I was going to speak somewhere in the Midwest. I just remember it was really, really flat. And the guy, this, 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 uh, actually it's a college student, or a seminary student, he picked me up at the airport and we'd get in the car and we're going to the university and it's just flat. It's farmers everywhere. So I say, what are you going to do when you, he, I said, are you a junior, senior? He said, I'm a senior. I said, what are you going to do when you graduate? He says, I'm going to go to seminary. So I said, well, are you going to be a missionary or a pastor? And he said, I, no, not a missionary. I'll probably be a pastor. And just about that time, this huge John Deere tractor made a turn right in the field, right by the road and went, the, you know, went back out. And I said, well, you see this man on the, the tractor. Uh, have you ever thought about how Jesus relates to him and his farming? He spends 60, 70 hours a week on a, on a tractor. His whole family network is all about farming. And he said, well, I never thought about that. And I will never forget to look at his face because he looked at me like I had that third eye growing. I'm like, what, what, where'd you come from? What kind of question is that? And I said, well, this is an important question. More than likely, you're going to have a, a whole church full of farmers and their families who give their entire lives to farming. And he said, and I said, so it's an important question. How does Jesus relate to the farmer? And he said, well, I just don't know. I've never thought about it. And I said, well, I said, when you get home tonight and you get ready to eat your supper, 
what do you do before you take your first bite? He said, well, I thank the Lord for the food. And I said, well, why are you thanking the Lord for the food that the farmer grew? And he said, well, you're not saying I'm not supposed to thank the farmer. And I said, no, no, I'm saying, I mean, you're not saying I'm supposed to thank the Lord. I said, no, thank the Lord. What I'm trying to help you see is that your prayer already knows how Jesus relates to the farmer. You just don't have a theology that will allow you to see what your prayer already knows. And he says, well, I think I'm getting what he told. I said, you're thanking the God for the farmer, thanking the God for the food that the farmer grew. So you're saying the farmer is participating in a provision that's coming from the Father, Son, and Spirit to you. You are recognizing in your prayer that that man's included and is a participant. Yet you don't have a theology that will allow you to approach him that way. Now, to take that story and extend it to this conversation, he's going to go knock on his door and pretend that he's outside and try to get him to jump through the hoops to get inside. And then once he gets him inside because of the sacred-sacred dichotomy, he's going to try to get him to be less of a farmer and more of a Christian who's doing these things over in the sacred, the sacred world. I mean, no wonder nobody wants to be in the middle of that. Oh. But we don't even see who the farmer really is. And, and we can't treat him with the proper dignity or his family. And if we did... He probably knocked the door down to come to have more to learn more about this in Sunday morning because nobody else is telling me anything about that. Everybody else is treating me like I'm just a farmer. So the, the, these are huge questions to me. But on that practical level, when we see who people really are and whose life they've been included in and what life is coming out of them or trying to, we begin to relate to them in that in that with light, the light of Jesus, and and people want to know about that. Farmer wants to know. I talk to Marines. A chance to speak to Marines at, at one of the bases in the United States. Um, and and we had a, a long discussion, and I said to them, I said, before we get into a big, long discussion about this, I want to say one thing to you. You are concerned to protect, and you have a passion in your soul to protect and to create space for freedom for life. And I said, that comes from the Father, Son, and Spirit. Now, we can get into arguments as to whether, you know, I'm not talking about, I'm talking about the burden that you bear in your soul, what motivates you to work and, and to protect and defend and to brave the seas and to go into situations. And you're being moved by a, a love for freedom and life. And I want you to know that has its origin in the Father, Son, and Spirit. And so I'm sitting in the room with Marines telling this story, and they're all crying. Not all of them, most of them, big guys. Because they know I've spoken to what's motivating their being. And now I'm trying to help them to see who that is. You don't think they want to be in the conversation. That Sunday night, they bring their wives and their little boys to the church to have a conversation. And how different is that from me having a methodology of evangelism that's fundamentally for a lot of us that was motivated by guilt, fear that we're not going to be doing something that God required of us, guilt that we'd end up with somebody's blood on our hands because we didn't, and then we treat everybody like a target, not be, not because they're human beings who matter, but because we're still trying to deal with our criteria of what it means to be successful spiritually. Mm -hmm. And it's motivated by all the wrong things. You could even take that and make it make it artificial too if you just turn it into a, here's what you say. Yeah. It needs to be real in order for and, it to, and, and to, by, you know, and by to be real. His relationship is real. And by yeah. real, the point is, and this is where it forces us to be real, because what we're really doing in evangelism is we're saying, hey, come walk with us. Come walk with us. We believe Jesus is leading us into life. Come walk with us and do this with us. And we, we don't have it all worked out, but this is what we do see. And come walk with us. And if that's not what we're saying in the pulpit, preaching, 
teaching, evangelism. His come walk with us, then exactly what what are we saying? Come jump through a hoop and get through something. But, but it's either we're trying to walk with Jesus and understand, and broken as we are and blind as we are. But what we're trying to do here is participate in that life. Come join us. Come walk with us. We see it in you. We want to help. We want to encourage you. And we're going to encourage you in broken ways. But just walk with us. That's what Jesus says. Come walk with me. Follow me. The disciples of John the Baptist come up behind him and say, you know, Rabbi, where are you staying? And he turns and says, oh, you want to know where I'm dwelling? That's the word used. I don't know why they translate it staying. It's Jesus like, you want to know where I'm staying? Where I dwell? You mean like in the bosom of my father? Walk with me and I'll, and you will see. And evangelism is nothing, in its truest sense, is nothing other than an invitation to come share life. This is it. Come share life with us. Walk together. And let's walk with That is so much different. They're so very different than approaching a person. Okay, you are outside. I have to manipulate you to get you to jump through the hoops that I was taught that are going to change in two years, but I don't know that right now, that you've got to say it this way and jump through these hoops. And and i got to figure out a way to get you to do that when you don't want to do that. And I don't even really want to do you because I, I know you. We play golf together. <laughs> but now I've got to treat you like we're not friends and, and get you to, to do this. It's very artificial. But it comes down to are we inviting people to walk with us in our lives? And, and you know, I totally understand the, the, the struggle that's involved in this conversation, period. As soon as you start to talk about evangelism, you almost always have to go to methodology. And as soon as you do that, it's no longer dynamic and organic and relational. It's no longer me in the midst of my world loving the people who are in it and allowing that love to generate whatever the conversations are. And again, for a lot of believers, they don't even know who they are here. Therefore, having a methodology becomes the in-between step to thinking that that defines what a believer is supposed to do, right? But until they know that they're loved, this is not going to be a dynamic and organic and a relational thing either. But, and so we've got this struggle. Uh, by It's like saying, well, now our new method of evangelism is to love somebody. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Uh, well, it, it, Dietrich Bonhoeffer had this great quote where he said, Jesus himself did not uh, try to convert the two thieves on the cross. He waited until one of them turned to him. And he knew that the other one he was going to meet on the other side for in just a few minutes. I think he's going to meet them all with both of them in just a few minutes. Well, I mean, he, they're both going to die. That's what, right. What's the other That's thief right. going to meet on the other side? I think See? it's a lesson for us. Yeah. I want to tell, I've got several st- stories I wish we had time to tell, maybe another time. But one, I was in, um, I think I was in Kona, and they had done, the cl- some of the people that I was teaching had done an evangelism class or something like that. Uh, and the guy that was teaching, I think, if I remember correct, was from, from California, maybe Southern California. But he had told them, here's what I want you to do, uh, or she had. Um, I want you to get together in groups of three, and I want you to pray and ask the Lord, what do you want us to do? Just pray. Lord, show us. And so if he doesn't say anything, just get back together and pray. There's no pressure. Do whatever. Anyway, this one story that I heard, they got together and prayed, and they said there's a they saw, the, one of them saw a girl standing behind a counter with a blue shirt on. Another one said her name was, saw a tag, said Sarah, and, and that's about it. And then another one said something about uh, finances, that finances are going to be okay. And that's all they knew. And they didn't even know where she was or anything. So 
they just decided to go for a coffee down in the town. And they're walking around in the shops or whatever. One of them looks over, and there's a girl standing behind the counter with a blue shirt on, and her name tag is Sarah. And so they're like, whoa, 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 this is like, you know, they were tripped out a little bit. And but, uh, and I'm sure I'm getting some of the story wrong because I don't, it's, been, it's been a while, but the heart of it was there. What they essentially did was walk over, and they said, are you Sarah? And she said, yeah, you know, like, yes. And they said, we were praying for you this morning, and the Lord told us to tell you that your finances are going to be okay. And that's all they said. And I don't even know what happened next, but I know if that happened to me, I would want to know, okay, y'all going to be praying again tomorrow? <laughs> I got a whole checkbook here. I mean, I, I mean that drew her into their shared life. And that's what evangelism is. It's not making, getting somebody to jump through a hoop. It's helping them drawn, to be drawn into this life with us that we ourselves are struggling to live. And that's very much more relational and dynamic and means it can have faces, it's infinite variety of ways that can happen in any given day. If we're walking with Jesus and we, and we are saying we want to participate, then we're, helping, we're just drawing people into that. And, and we have to understand that the greatest evangelism ever done was Jesus. And he, you know, so he, is, he, he says, I don't do anything but I, what I see the Father do. And sometimes that means walking away. And sometimes that means saying, what do I have to do with you? I came for Israel. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it means saying a word. Mm-hmm. And, but it happens within the context of real life. And, and the real life that, that, that comes to you, that, that the, the people you cross paths with. Absolutely. And that is a part of our relationships. It's, it's like, okay, so now we've got to now come up with a, uh, small groups of relationships in order to to validate the idea of relationships, right? Well, you know what? We're in them. Just look around in your life. You're, you're, they're all over. Love the people that are in your world. Allow the questions and, the, and everything to come up in the context of that. Know who you are inside of your relationship with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and express that life. And let the Holy Spirit enter this adventure and allow you to participate with what Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are trying to do in their love for the people that you love because they care about the things you care about. Mm. Very well. Amen. Well, well thanks. Thanks again for being here. Good to be back. Good Always to see you. Always a pleasure. Very good conversation. Thanks. So what'd you get? <laughs> it's important to realize that as you begin to understand grace and you begin to understand you're in the heart of the Father and the Father is already in you, that this relationship that includes us extends to everyone. I don't have to convince an atheist there is a God. It's God's job to convince them. Right? But what I can do is I can live an authentic life. Being willing to ask questions, being willing to engage. Norman. The one thing I realized when those guys were talking, the thing that had missing though, is the grace thing. Absolutely. I was gonna get to that. You got you picked that up. See, one of the cautions that I that as you move into this grace message, the tendency is want to throw out the spiritual gifts. 
because the charismatic movement has distorted some of the aspects of the gifts. And so as we come out of a prophetic, charismatic background for some of us, the, the tendency was to put all of that on the shelf. Let me read you something, and I'll come back to that point. They talked about Jesus in, in evangelism, did they not? If you've got a mirror Bible, you can make a note or you can turn there. But in John chapter 1, Jesus, all of, all of a sudden, disciples are starting to show up on the picture, right? And there's Philip, and Philip had a brother named Nathaniel. So if you go to verse 47, chapter 1, verse 47, when Jesus saw Nathaniel approach him, he made the following observation. Now here is a man of Israel in whom there is no guile. And then here's the footnote. Note the wisdom of Jesus. Instead of engaging Nathaniel in a doctrinal debate around the scriptures, he endorsed him. He saw Nathaniel as he was and endorsed him. Didn't tell him he was bad, didn't tell him he was evil, didn't tell him he was going to hell, didn't tell him he was stupid, didn't tell him he was wrong. He goes, there's a man of Israel, and in him there is no guile. How did Jesus know there was, in no, there was no guile? He's, he was operating prophetically at that moment. Carol? Well, and he knows because Jesus knows he's in him. Yes. And if we are included here, why are we surprised when we operate prophetically? Why are we surprised when we operate in the gift of healing? You see, reaching these people, groups, and these, you know, to some degree, these are artificial classifications. Reaching humanity in general... We just get to be us. I am so happy I don't have to have a checklist of how many people I need to go evangelize to this week. None of you have a checklist. I've destroyed it. And if you want to hang on to it, come see me. I'll still destroy it. So I'm going to stop here today. We're going to pick up, we'll finish this out next week. I'm going to put another aspect on it next week.